You are about to listen to the full interview with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Sections of it were originally included in our Sierra Sounds episode. Dr. Meldrum is a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University with a special interest in human bipedalism. His fascination with Sasquatch has crowned him being the eminent scientist pushing for serious discussions on the topic. His lab houses over 300 Sasquatch footprint casts, and he publishes a peer-reviewed paper called The Relict Hominoid. We hope you enjoy. Well, my name is uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. I'm a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, where I teach uh, human gross anatomy in the health professions programs and do research in in physical anthropology, uh, particularly aspects of human evolution and functional morphology, uh, especially the evolution of human bipedalism. And it's that interest that um, in a very, very broad, uh, you know, approach from uh, the uh, perspective of functional morphology, looking at uh, fossil skeletal remains of uh, comparative studies of living primates and human uh, locomotor function and anatomy and so forth. But it's that uh, focus on those specializations for walking on two legs that really uh, was the the impulse. It, that's why this this question of the existence of Sasquatch is more than just a uh, you know a, a weekend avocational interest of mine. Mm-hmm. This is a part and parcel of my research program because if there is another persistent uh, population, a relic hominoid that also exhibits that uh, that uh, otherwise considered somewhat singular adaptation of walking on two legs, that would provide great insight into our understanding of its its pattern and process of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, emerging. Yeah. Um, I, just in case anyone doesn't know what Sasquatch mm-hmm. is, could you just kind of give me mm-hmm. some background on what Sasquatch is and where is it most commonly cited? Right. Well, Sasquatch is, is a name, an, an anglicized form of a indigenous name uh, derived from particularly from the tribes of the British Columbia coast the Pacific Northwest uh, which which translates essentially as wild man of the woods and um, throughout history we have evidence of uh, a fascination by human cultures with the possible existence of non-human humanoid uh, creatures that uh, Usually, are denizens of the forests, the the hinterlands, uh, the mountains, and and forested regions of, of the world, and um, and so Sasquatch is is a North American manifestation of of some of that uh, that notion, uh, and um, so we're we're talking in this case about a a relic hominoid, as I would refer to it, a persistent population of of uh, in this case, very large, uh, you know, averaging anywhere from six and a half to nine and a half feet uh, tall, hair covered, uh, but but otherwise generally humanoid looking in appearance, only in the sense that it stands upright, you know, vaguely the uh, outline of a human, but there's so many aspects, and we could go on and on about the distinguishing characteristics, very large in, in physique, uh, very robust, very um, uh, very ape-like in, in many of its qualities, but resembling humans in that it stands and walks and runs on two legs. 
Could you tell me about the time that you got introduced to the uh, to the Sasquatch, and what is it about that moment that drew you into the search? Certainly, the well, the the first exposure to the concept of of Sasquatch or, or Bigfoot, it, as it was um, labeled at that point uh, in my experience, was uh, way back in in uh, the late 1960s when I was <clears throat> in fifth grade. And uh, at a time when I was, you know, ever since I was a, a little kid and could uh, get out on my own, I was collect always collecting things and insect collections and bringing home animals and and was fascinated with natural history and and uh, and as well as as do many young people of that period of their lives uh, uh, went through a dinosaur period where I was fascinated with all things prehistoric and. Um, dinosaurs and, and uh, Ice Age megafauna and cavemen and so forth. And so um, one day at school, the kids were abuzz talking about this movie that was advertised to be shown um, shortly in Spokane at the Coliseum uh, about Bigfoot. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm now, now that just as I say that, I'm not quite sure if I've, if at that time I had an inkling of what the abominable snowman was at that time, because that was back in the 50s. I was born in 58, so I kind of came on the tail end of, of that uh, buzz. But um, but this was my first notion of Bigfoot, but it seemed to embody all those things that I was fascinated with already. And so I, I had to see this and convince my dad to take uh, me. And of course, my younger brother came along and and we saw this film and, and, and didn't meet personally, but were introduced to Roger Patterson and his his claims, and I was I was just mesmerized and uh, became a uh, you know a, a, a focal point. Now I don't want to go so far as saying an obsession, <laughs> but I was at being somewhat of a collector when I started in on something. I I went after it and uh, you know began looking for. Uh, newspaper clippings and things like that, magazine articles that would come out. I can remember, you know, one at that time, one of the only magazines that really carried stories were the men's ma- the men's adventure magazines, not the girly magazines, but well, a little bit the the true and the saga and the Argosy. And I can remember, you know, discreetly slipping into the grocery store, department store, and sneaking a peek at the table of contents of Saga to see if it had anything about Bigfoot or the Bomb <laughs> Snowman. <laughs> And, uh, of course, it was before the age of uh, copy machines, and so I would uh, very um, uh, diligently uh, transcribe on my mom's old typewriter passages from the books I could find that had uh, uh, mention of the abominable snowman and and other things relating to wild men and and, uh, tape recording, movie soundtracks. You know, we'd we'd wait till they came to the drive-in theater so we could... Uh, tape record the soundtrack and listen to those at night, you know, falling asleep to the soundtrack of uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek or something like that. So that interest waxed and waned, you know, as I as I grew up, uh, uh, it uh, it kind of came and went, as did the, the public interest and the coverage, you know, in, in, a, in an age prior to social media, with now its ever-present... Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, presence in, in front of your face. But uh, when I uh, ultimately pursued my 
career and settled on a career in, in anatomical sciences in, in academia. And I bounced around, you know, I was going to be a <clears throat> wildlife biologist or a forest ranger or a, a veterinarian. In fact, I entered the university on a pre-veterinary track and already had my two hour, 200 hours of, uh, of work experience in a veterinary clinic and so forth. And But I got, uh, I was uh, seduced by science and uh, blinded by science, as the song says, you know, and uh uh, and, th- and that was actually, it wasn't until I was at, at college that I gained an inkling of how academia worked, how one could make a living as a academic scientist. And, uh, and so th- that's where I ended up. And so my interests in how, uh, how animals move and how humans have evolved and so forth still seem to guide that uh, that pursuit, and I ended up uh, uh, doing a, a doctoral thesis on terrestrial adaptations in African uh, monkeys with implications for uh, the interpretation of hominin bipedalism. And so when, some years later, uh, events, uh, you know, some popularized events uh, uh, sort of reinvigorated my interest in the possibility of, of Bigfoot, which was always kind of rattling around back there uh, because of my interest in bipedalism. Um, I was in, a, in an exceptional position, you know, of, of, of any academic who might turn their attention to this subject. You know, um, I was rather uh, very appropriately schooled. My predecessor, Grover Krantz, was also a physical anthropologist and, and and an anatomist to a degree, uh, but didn't have the particular specialization in uh, in uh, pedal morphology and and the interpretation of footprints as it related to the evolution of human bipedalism. And so, when I was taken out and shown a long line of tracks, fresh tracks in the ground, by Paul Freeman in uh, just outside of Walla Walla in 1996. I mean, it. Uh, I was in a position to really appreciate and understand what I was looking at and evaluate it. I, I, I'm quite confident. I'm, I'm, you know, certain of that. And uh, that that set the ball rolling uh, and you know, set the hook. Whatever metaphor you want to use, that that was the initial impetus. Like you, I remember seeing the Roger Patterson film and, and just being so so amazed and still amazed to it by it to this day. And I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around um, some of the evidence that exists for Sasquatch. I think particularly with Ray Wallace when he came out with the, the footprint uh, cast. Uh, I still hear people mention that as the explanation for Bigfoot to this day. And I hear I hear stories around how someone has come out and identified that they made the costume for the Roger Patterson film. But maybe you could kind of just talk on, because I think those are the two points that a lot of times people um, bring up when you discuss Sasquatch and say, oh, no, look, this is the key evidence has been disproved. Maybe could you talk a little bit on those two points and why those don't explain Sasquatch? And I can can give a a very personal perspective, too, because, of course, when the, the Wallace story sort of hit the wires and and was repeated around the world, uh, kind of like uh, the uh, party game telegraph. It just, it, 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 with every reiteration, it was embellished or expanded or exaggerated uh, till 
everything was attributable to this one family. And uh, I contacted Mike Wallace, who was the adopted son of Ray Wallace. He wasn't alive when all this went down, but he was sort of acting as the family spokesperson at the time. So I contacted him and I introduced myself and I explained, you know, my involvement and my particular interest in the footprints. And I said, this is an interesting development. It should be very straightforward uh, to uh, uh, document your uh, uh, stompers, your carved wooden feet, and very readily um, correlate those to the footprint record that uh, I've accumulated. I have over 300 footprint casts in my lab now. And, uh, you know, if, if indeed your clan, as you've claimed, ha- is, uh, is responsible for the, uh, you know, manufacture, the fabrication of footprints all across the, the country, then it'll be very straightforward and we can lay it to rest, you know. And, uh, well, he says, well, you know, there's just been such a, so much publicity and brouhaha, and it's just got the family in a bit of an uproar. Mom's really stressed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, oh, and, and there's talk now about a book deal about Dad's life, and they might even make a film about him. And so, you know, I, I had asked for permission to just simply come and photograph and measure, uh, and uh, he, he wouldn't have it. And so I said, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you, because the press is also reporting that, uh, you know, that your dad pointed Roger in the direction of Bluff Creek and that, in fact, it was, uh, you know, uh, you, that the Wallaces were responsible for the costume, for the person in the costume that he filmed. Oh, no, no, he said, no. He said, I'm, I'm quite sure that it's, it's hoaxed, but our family had nothing to do with it. Two weeks later, as the story was kind of cooling a little and attention was uh, not as intense. Um, here they appear on TV again, the whole clan surrounding mom. And mom is five foot two, by the way. Um, here's, and, and they're saying, oh, yes, you know, and they, they show a clip of the, P, the Patterson Gimlin film and they all chime in, oh, yes, that's mom in the first suit. And mom has this wry little grin on her face, like, oh, yes, that was me, you know. And, uh, and then she says, yes, I couldn't believe he made me get in that suit. It was hunting season, you know. And so just a 180-degree reversal of what he had uh, uh, acknowledged to me previously. So there's, there's absolutely nothing. The, the prints that they have, have uh, uh, shown are either so crude and so ridiculous that nobody would, would mistake them for legitimate footprints or the, only, the ones that got the most mileage were clearly carved in imitation of an existing footprint cast. And we can demonstrate that. We can demonstrate and we established that, yes, Bob Titmus had given Ray a copy of this one particular footprint, and lo and behold, that set of carved feet that, that got all the uh, press coverage is almost identical to those, but not identical. They could not have been made by those carved wooden feet because there are discrepancies, but yet they were clearly patterned. And that's why they looked so different. That set of of carved feet looked so different than the pattern that he repeated over and over and over again. A Ray Wallace fake carved foot has a distinctive uh, appearance, a distinctive style. The the toes look like uh, Easter eggs lined up with a straight rule, you know, and there's this exaggerated split in the ball. 
and uh, and these very bulbous, rounded contours. I mean, like I said, nobody with any savvy of footprints would mistake them for the remarkably animated, certainly not the footprints I examined uh, fresh in the ground that had every sign of, of a spontaneous animated footprint, a whole series of them with, with the kinds of variation you would expect in a, in a living, articulate, uh, animate foot. So, yeah, <clears throat> he would have been a busy man if he could make his way all across North America, Canada, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Pacific Northwest yeah. and managed to pull off so many fakes. Um, well, one, right. One if, of the he, yeah. even if it was practical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the things that always amazes me um, about some of the footprint evidence is is dermal ridges that are left in some of these these casts. Um, can you talk yes. about can you talk what about what a dermal ridge mm-hmm. is and, and what it means, the significance of it in a footprint? Right. Well, if you look at your hand, you know, we, we all know about fingerprints and their use in, in uh, uh, forensic uh, uh, cases, uh, criminal investigations and so forth, you have, or identification and biometrics. So you have, you have uh, these, these ridges, these uh, dermal ridges or papillary ridges that are, are essentially friction skin. They're studded with little sweat glands that provide just enough moisture. It's like the batter getting up to the home plate and spitting into his hands and rubbing it together. That little bit of moisture increases the coefficient of friction when you're holding on to the bat or a lumberjack with his axe handle. And likewise, that little bit of moisture on, on our, our hands helps us to grip things and pick things up. And um, that friction skin is, uh, extends over the entire palm of your hand, as well as the sole of your feet and undersides of your toes. So uh, you have friction skin there as well. And uh, if the conditions are appropriate, and that requires the substrate to be very fine in, uh, in, in part particle size, uh, like uh, talcum powder, uh, which you would find, say, on a well-trodden um, logging road where the trucks have, have just pulverized the dirt to fine powdery dust, or um, in uh, places like southeastern Washington, where attention was first scientifically drawn to these by Grover Krantz, there is an inordinate amount of what we call glacial lus, this fine talcum powdery consistency uh, sediment that makes up much of the soils. And so when it's wet, it makes a very clay surface. If it's dry, it's very powdery. It's like stepping into into talcum powder or flour. And so those very fine details of the surface of the sole of the foot will transfer to the soil. And then if they're found soon enough, because every passing vehicle is going to rain down another cloud of dust or literally jiggle them uh, out of, you know, just like uh, tamping uh, cement, uh, the ridges and irregularities quickly um, uh, you know, smooth out. Or if it's very moist, gravity itself will simply pull and flatten out these, this topography to a, uh, a flatter uh, uh, surface. So they have to be found fairly soon. And then someone that has enough experience to successfully cast a footprint with the uh, plaster of the proper consistency so that the weight of the plaster doesn't obliterate or very thin plaster literally wash them out uh, and uh, and uh, eradicate those details, uh, transferring them, uh, otherwise successfully transferring them to the to the plaster cast. 
So they're very rare. You know, these, there's only, in the 300 casts I have, there's probably only a dozen that have uh, any indication of ridge detail at all because of those conditions that I've just described. <clears throat> there were a couple that were discovered even earlier before Grover drew attention. I had corresponded with someone up in northern Idaho and a footprint cast had been made there and an academic who had a, they actually had a little cryptozoology club for the students in some of his anthropology classes. <clears throat> and they had investigated a very interesting sighting case and had cast a footprint themselves and had commented on these observable ridge details that were evident. But of course, it just never, it was never published, never popularized. Whereas uh, Dr. Grant successfully got a paper published that described them in, in considerable detail, had them examined by latent fingerprint examiners from several different uh, agency um, offices and bureaus. Um, so it's it's really quite interesting. The tracks that I witnessed, again, were in Walla Walla, where that clay soil is predominant, and uh, many of the roads, especially the, the farm access roads, the tertiary roads, are just graded tracks. They're not, uh, they're not improved with gravel beds or anything. And uh, those tracks that I saw were so fresh, when I first knelt down, you could still see skin ridge detail in some of them. Unfortunately, the weather conditions, it had been raining that weekend, which made the soil so moist and clay, and uh, the, the scattering, uh, scattered showers we had during that afternoon, uh, by the time we returned with materials to make plaster casts, much of that detail, if not all of it, was obliterated and didn't transfer, nothing transferred to any of the footprints that casts that I made. I have a million other general Sasquatch questions I want to ask you, but we are. This episode is about Sierra Sounds specifically. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Could you could you kind of give me an introduction to what you know of the Sierras, what they are, and where and how they were recorded? Right. Well, of all of the uh, recorded sounds or vocalizations attributed to Sasquatch, I think the Sierra Sounds. I mean, they're kind of the Patterson Gimlin film to all. Uh, they are to, to sound recordings what the Patterson-Gimlin film is to, is to photographics. They are just kind of head and shoulders up there. Now, <clears throat> uh, there remains questions about it. And, of course, if you, don't, if you don't, aren't open to the possibility of the existence of Sasquatch, you'll focus on all of the other potential explanations and, and uh, hoax conspiracy theories. But... Uh, basically what happened is there were a couple of brothers that had a hunting camp up in the Sierra Nevada mountains on the border of between, uh, you know, Eastern California and Nevada. And, uh, they, uh, their camp was uh, occasionally visited by something that vocalized and, and, um, uh, left sign in the region. There, there was then, uh, uh an association by, um, uh, Oh, if I keep the history straight, uh, Ron Moorhead and Al Barry became involved, and um, they started making treks up. And during when when uh, Al was was a uh, uh, journalist, and so he uh, was the one that kind of spearheaded the um, taking audio recording equipment up there in order to try to document this. This occurred during the early '70s, and. Um, over the course of a number of years, there was quite a lot of 
uh, interaction. I think there's something like a total of 90 minutes or something like that of, of recordings. Um, these recordings are, they're not just, you know, a distant howl. Whatever it was, was approaching camp. Uh, the men would retreat into this wikiup, this uh, kind of a elaborate lean-to of, of uh, deadfall and so forth and, and uh, boughs and branches that, that made kind of a teepee shelter structure between some large trees. And from within there, they would stick a microphone out or hang a microphone from uh, um, the doorway and record what was going on outside. So you can hear their muffled um, conversations and uh, vocalizations that they call to and interact with whatever it is that's approaching camp. And whatever it is, is, is uh, producing very loud, high volume uh, vocalizations. Uh, uh, there are, there's, uh, you know, growls and grunts and, and chatter. Some of the most interesting uh, have been referred to as samurai chatter because they sound like that very guttural Japanese um, uh, uh, utterances that uh, that you know you hear on some of the World War II mo- movies and samurai movies and so forth. Um, and um, but one of the one that caught my attention more than anything was the whistle. There's a point where the witnesses are uh, they whistled trying to call them in. And there's a response. You can clearly hear the human, the kind of muffled sort of whistle and uh, whistling between their teeth, uh, uh, which I I cannot do. But uh, the response comes back loud and clear, but it's different. It sounds like uh, it has a harmonic, like there's an, an overtone to it. Now, that's been described. I know there, there is one paper that's been published uh, it uh, published in the proceedings of a conference that was held up at the University of British Columbia, and uh, it uh, uh, two authors, uh, uh, Curlin and Hurdle, uh, they're not linguists or bioacousticians, or but they have skills in uh, sound analysis, and they do point out that it is possible to generate that kind of harmonic if the microphone is saturated. In other words, if the sound is so intense and so close to the microphone that it can uh, create this uh, apparent harmonic. Or the other explanation is that it represents a much shorter vocal tract than the other very loud vocalizations, suggesting that they're creating this sound by also employing their, um, their pharynx. So they're not whistling through their teeth or through their lips, but they're whistling back in the back of their throat, which is really quite interesting. I mean, it uh, you know, like a bird would sing with its syrinx, it's called, and and um, it uh, there are some examples of human uh, humans capable of creating an undertone. The uh, throat singers of Juva and the Eskimos. Uh, have a, a, a way of singing where they create this. It's almost like the drone on a bagpipe. You've got the pipe out front, but the drone, the air, the air bag is a, or a bladder is, is a making this drone through these tall pipes over your shoulder. And um, that was fascinating to me because that actually suggests the potential for some... Um, uh, you know, some extra laryngeal air sacs, perhaps, in 
in uh, the Sasquatch, which wouldn't be unexpected at all because they're present in the other three uh, groups of great apes, the orang chimps and gorillas, to the greatest extent in the uh, orangutan, to the least in the chimp. And so in humans, they're very rare, but they do pop up every once in a while. If you you ever saw the uh, movie Altered States with uh, Will Hurt, uh, when uh, he comes out of the isolation tank one time and he's externalized his, his vision and he has grown uh, extra laryngeal air sacs. And the radiologist looks at the x-ray and says, what is this guy, an effing gorilla? <laughs> it was very apropos. But in any case, um, so the vocalizations are fascinating. They've, they've also led to uh, interpretations that suggest or hypothesize that Sasquatch has a, an articulate, intelligent language that they are, are communicative in, on that level. And I'm, I'm still, for me, the jury is still out. I mean, I have the greatest respect for Nelson. He's a professional Navy-trained cryptolinguist who is now retired, but he, uh, I have, uh, I've prodded and urged him to submit a manuscript or, or a, at least a report that we could, I, I edit a, an online journal, The Relic Hominoid Inquiry, I, together with a, an editorial board of other PhDs and professionals, and I, I said, we, we need to engage in dialogue by getting this out for peer review. Because one of the advantages, not only is there the advantage of, of having the, uh, the checks and balances of peer review, but peer review also promotes dialogue. It, especially for this subject, it allows me to recruit individuals with expertise who otherwise might not uh, choose to be involved or to uh, consider the subject matter. But when asked to, uh, you know, for professional service as a reviewer or a commentator, uh, my experience, we're now in our 10th year of publication, uh, is that um, even on a cold call, I've often gotten very enthusiastically affirmative responses like, well, this is really interesting, and yeah, I'd be happy to do this. So, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, he has demurred from taking that step, and so we're kind of stuck, you know? It's like I, I, uh, the, one, the one of the other uh, hesitancies I have about the whole thing is uh, the footprints. I mean, my my litmus test is the footprints, and uh, when uh, you know, I actually, I actually have it because I, I pulled it off the shelf in anticipation of these questions. I, I've got a 45. Your listeners probably won't even know what that is. Not a pistol, but a 45 record, vinyl record, which I ordered. The title is "A Living Legend: Bigfoot Sounds Off," and it was the first f- format of publication of the Sierra Sounds. And uh, on the back, it has a photograph of a, this one uh, is, states it measures uh, 20 inches long. I think most of them were came in that uh, were stated as being 18 inches. But the thing about it that causes concern is, is the sole of the foot looks extremely triangular with a, a heel that's fairly narrow and five toes displayed uh, almost like those uh, notorious Easter eggs. Uh, across the squarely across the end of the foot, so squarely that I can't tell you if it's a right or a left foot. And uh, Ron has 
uh, graciously shared photos of other footprints. Uh, there was a photo in his um, in his book uh, Voices in the Wilderness, which also was cause for concern because it uh, it it doesn't look like a spontaneous footprint. It has a little ridge of pine needle duff all the way around it, like it was uh, shaped, you know. And uh, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone or passing judgment. I'm just saying that it's it makes me uneasy that there's not a uh, a, a compelling um, corroboration by very um, credible looking footprints associated with this event. Have you ever seen casts of the footprints? Well, only the ones, only photographs. Oh, only photographs, uh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, I haven't had the opportunity to examine any of, of, of the casts from that site uh, personally. Yeah. Um, in the recordings, we hear the vocalizations. We also hear wood knocking um, and the whistling. Are these, can you kind of talk about the significance of these noises and what they, are they commonly reported in Sasquatch encounters? Right. Right. Whistling seems to be part of their uh, vocal repertoire and it, you know, those roots of that go back to to uh, Native American traditions. The, the Tsonaqua, the female cannibal giantess, the woman of the woods, wild woman of the woods, is always depicted with her lips pursed as if she's whistling, or sometimes it's interpreted as a wail, a uh, wailing cry. But that uh, those pursed lips are very characteristic. So yes, whistling is uh, frequently as and, and, and I mentioned, you know, that I was impressed by the the whistlings on uh, amongst those Sierra Sound recordings. Wood knocking has always been, uh, or not always, but uh, I, I think it really took on can actually point to one person, and that was uh, Matt Moneymaker. Uh, from Ohio, where of all places, uh, in eastern Ohio, I shouldn't say it like that. Have, after having been there, I mean, most people would not think of Ohio as a place where Bigfoot would uh, hang out. But eastern Ohio, my first trip there years ago, I was quite int- intrigued. I mean, it's a lot of private land, and there are a lot of fences, but there's a lot of uninter- otherwise uninterrupted habitat up against the backside of the, uh, you know, the western slopes of the Appalachian in eastern Ohio. Lots and lots of contiguous forest. And and there's a considerable, uh, well, not considerable, there is a respectable bear population in that area and suggesting it could support an omnivorous species. Um, But um, wood knocking, yeah. Uh, the, the, The shortcoming of that assertion is that to my knowledge and I may I could easily be proven wrong I've never heard of or talked with a witness who's actually seen a Bigfoot uh, wrap a, a stick against a tree and if you ever try to do it out in the woods you know when Matt Moneymaker goes out on finding Bigfoot one of his tools of the trade is a little Louisville slugger that he carries around in his backpack because if you ever spontaneously decide you're going to do a wood knock and look around the forest floor for a good, solid, uh, unyielding piece of wood that you can wrap against a tree trunk hard enough to make a resounding <clears throat> wrap, you know, good luck. There, You might be able to reach up and break something off, but if it's for it to be big enough that it's going to survive a, a more than a, just one or two wraps, you're probably not going to be able to pull it off of the tree trunk very, very easily. So the question is, you know, is, is this a real description. Are they maybe pounding their chest or clapping their 
enormous hands based on the handprints we found and the appearance of Patty on the Patterson-Gimlin film. They're, they're pretty big mitts, you know, and, and uh, we do have anecdotes of great apes, gorillas, for example, clapping to get attention of another member of their group. Um, there are uh, instances of uh, when chimpanzees forage, they often use what's called a, a fission-fusion strategy, where during the day they um, split up into smaller groups to fan out and look for fresh, or not fresh, but ripe fruit, fruiting trees. And if one is found, oftentimes in their excitement, the the uh, chimps uh, who've discovered this tree will will uh, drum on the uh, the uh, tree trunk or the buttressed roots of the tree in order to uh, draw attention of their cohorts to come and help eat the fruit while it's ripe. Yeah, that was going to be my question: is do these does this behavior have any connection to any known primates? The whistling, wood knocking, or is this something that's unique to Sasquatch? Well, it it uh, oh, it does. I mean, I, I think there are analogs, and you know, some have said uh, great apes are incapable of uh, of whistling; they just don't whistle. Well, I, there may not be good observations recorded or documented of whistling uh, spontaneously, but they're capable. There's a great example. If you Google whistling orangutan, there's one orangutan who um, the one of his keepers used to always whistle while he was working. And uh, the orangutan learned how to whistle. And they couldn't figure out where this whistling was coming from for the longest time until they realized it was the orangutan. So just like, uh, just like things like swimming or eating fish, um, you know, there was a, a paucity of any documentation. Um, you know, there was, for example... Uh, the fact that Sasquatch seems to eat fish and to uh, take advantage of the salmon runs and steal, reportedly steal fish from um, the uh, Native Americans' uh, drying racks and smokehouses and so forth, weirs. Um, Eventually, it's now been recognized that, yes, in fact, they will and do uh, eat fish and catch fish and, and throw fish out of the shallows, you know, onto the bank and, and consume them. So likewise, swimming, um, you know, they, they have to learn, but they're capable of it. And sometimes they do uh, do it spontaneously. Not always. I mean, there's the stories of the uh, chimpanzee floundering in the moat at the zoo and an onlooker jumping in and rescuing him and pulling him up onto the bank. But on the other hand, you can also, again, Google swimming chimpanzees and swimming orangutans. And when they've been introduced to the water uh, from a young age, uh, they very quickly become quite proficient. They don't, they, they, just like most humans, they don't like to get water up their nose. And it's kind of comical to see a chimp uh, holding his hand over its nose to keep the water out. But once one uh, clip is very impressive because the chimp is actually capable of diving down in, in, into about eight feet of water, clearing a regulator on a scuba tank there and taking a couple of breaths and then swimming on. That's, that's pretty uh, impressive. That is impressive. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the tapes are pretty dramatic, the noises. It's, it's pretty clear that it's... Um probably not just some known animal in the Sierras, but is there any animal no. in the Sierras that you know of that could potentially replicate this sound? 
No, I, there yeah. really isn't. Yeah. I mean, the only the only times uh, you know there there are some vocalizations of Sasquatch just to to, to paint it a little more broadly that are uh, similar to, if not mistaken, uh, for uh, sounds like coyotes howling or barred owls. Uh, well, at least some of their calls. Uh, barred owls actually have numerous, uh, quite a large repertoire of calls that many people are unfamiliar with. Most are unfamiliar with. But anyway, um, there there are things like that. Um, sometimes deer and elk can make sounds that surprise people, uh, or uh, uh, even things like bobcats. Uh, uh, you know, it's quite illuminating to uh, do some research and and um, uh, look into the variety of sounds made by animals out there. But when you have something, you know, like this, one of the things that the Curlin's um, uh, uh, analysis showed was that the sounds, the Sierra sounds, um, fell outside of the typical range of vocalizations of humans, at least. Um, I don't know that they did a lot of comparison to other other sounds, but the vocal repertoire, uh, that's one of the things that's, that is quite interesting about the um, Sierra sound. See, I, I tend to, the, to um, in, in very broad brushstrokes, uh, point to two different groups of vocalizations. These animals are typically uh, out and about in a solitary fashion. Most sightings, most footprints are of single solitary individuals. Now, they may, as with chimps and their fission fusion, they may regroup later. Uh, but uh, and sometimes there are certainly females with offspring, if not, uh, uh, you know, a transient male uh, forming a consort pair with a female that's receptive at the time, and it may be misinterpreted as a nuclear family group. But in any case, the point being, uh, animals that do tend to disperse, at least during part of their daily routine, often have a loud call, a repertoire of loud calls that they use to advertise their presence or to remain in contact with their conspecifics or to defend a territory, advertise their presence to, uh, to uh, warn off interlopers, you know, other males, for example. And uh, but then there's these proximate uh, vocalizations where they they're chitter chitter chattering amongst themselves, and um, you know whether that represents some form of articulate uh, communication uh, or whether it's just uh, you know an exuberance of if you get a uh, a uh, I don't know what the proper term for a group of uh, if there is one for chimpanzees. <laughs> but when they're when they're partying, they're like a mob, and they can uh, be quite raucous. Um, gorillas, much less so, much more quiet and docile. And orangs are very solitary, so they're also remarkably quiet. Well, I guess given everything around the story of the recording of the Sierra sounds and the sounds themselves, do you do you personally feel that it could be a Sasquatch on the recordings? Oh, I definitely think it could be. Yes, I mean, I'm, I, I. Uh, you know, I don't. I, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't use the word believe, but based on the evidence, I think the possibility is very real, and and it's very it's very probable that it represents. I mean, given the uh, the scrutiny that has been directed 
to it um, by comparison to some other um, uh, recordings out there of supposed Sasquatch talking or communicating. Um, they are much more naturalistic sounding, much more what I would expect for a large primate than someone trying to, uh, you know, concoct uh, an artificial, uh, you know, sham. Um, but uh, I, you know, I'm I'm not 100%. Put it that way. I mean, I'm I'm much more confident, say, for because of my expertise in in uh, the Patterson Gimlin film, even though I wasn't there. Um, but likewise, you know, in, in considering the, the all of the uh, uh, associated evidence of, for the Sierra Sounds, and not having ever been there and experienced it myself, um, I have perhaps a bit more reservation, and that may stem in part, in part because of my lack of expertise on the vocalization. But I have applicable understanding and skills of comparative anatomy and vocal tract anatomy and and of course footprint anatomy and and so that uh, that that weighs into the formulation as well a quick diversions from the sierra sounds i have yeah. to ask do you feel do you feel totally confident that what roger patterson captured on film is a sasquatch from your from your studies well as as 99.9 percent yeah wow i mean just i've been mean, short of absolute because wow. you can't be yeah everything's tentative uh, not having been there and witnessed it but if all i had were the footprints to go by that were documented by roger and bob and subsequently photographed by uh lyle laverty and cast by bob titmus and others have shown up apparently other people visited and made footprint casts and a few of those have popped up from people's garages or sheds uh, at uh, various times. Um, if I had just those, uh, based on the um, appearance, the interpretation, and so forth, the dynamics that are not only recorded in the footprints, but can be seen in a correlative fashion in the uh, kinematics evident in the film subject in front of you, um, I would be convinced. I mean, that's just adds to it. Then looking looking at the rest of the anatomy and uh, mode of locomotion and uh, its gait and so forth, I'm absolutely convinced. Yeah, it's, I mean, well, I'm absolutely convinced to the point that I can be. But there's always that qualification. I mean, in science, as soon as you become absolute, I mean, it's dangerous to use yeah, that of word. Course, of course. I'm overwhelmingly convinced, yeah. put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Do you know much about the history of Sasquatch sightings in the Sierras? Are they commonly sighted there? Are there lots of footprint sightings? There, there are. There are. Um, I mean, if you go to one of the online databases like the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, you get a, you get a, a sense. I mean, that's not the end all by any means, but it, but it does convey a sense of, of the uh, uh, number and type uh, of. Uh, or the relative frequency, put it that way, the relative frequency and type of, of encounters, be they footprint finds or bumps in the night or uh, visual encounters. But up and down that, uh, you know, from Northern California all across the state and then down the uh, the spine of the Sierra Nevada mountains south of Lake Tahoe, yes, lots of encounters. I have had a few instances where people have contacted me directly. Uh, there was a gentleman who 
who often, uh, you know, he, he was a trail runner and uh, he uh, haunted the areas uh, just north of uh, Yosemite and um, he encountered footprints and, and they were quite quite convincing. They were about 14 inches long and, and uh, very, uh, very interesting set of footprints. So there have been other um, encounters that have, have come to my attention directly, but of course, lots, lots of them indirectly. Could you talk about how Sasquatch fits into different um, Native American legends of the area? Oh, sure. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost ubiquitous. Well, it virtually is, because when you consider, you know, the location uh, th- that uh, the, uh, many of the uh, tribal groups were very mobile, by choice or, or otherwise, because there they were lots of displacement and shifting of territories and waxing and waning of population size and so forth. And so uh, my point being that even tribes that occupy areas now that seemed very constrained and atypical of where one might encounter Bigfoot, their oral traditions and legends extend to times when their their population may have occupied areas that were ecologically appropriate. And, uh, And so almost every tribe has some form of tradition about giants and uh, one of the common themes, uh, they're often described as being uh, as being hair covered, or sometimes they're called you know stick men or rock men uh, because of the uh, uh, their uh, what's the word I'm after? You know, a rock man doesn't mean that the person's made out of rock, um, like a member of the Fantastic Four, but rather that. You know that arrows don't don't seem to stop it. Basically, might might give uh, lend uh, to that uh, perception. But uh, it's interesting that because there there are these themes throughout. Um, in addition to their uh, big size and and uh, um, the fact that although they haunt the uh, you know the nether regions of the mountainous forested areas, they're they're feared oftentimes because they often are attributed with uh, abducting adults, especially women, and also children, and eating them. The, they are cannibal giants. And so, um, you know, it sounds like a just-so story, so maybe a boogeyman story that's told to keep children in line and in before their curfew. But um, a friend of mine was a uh, working for the Peace Corps in Africa and stayed on and became a park ranger. And they were working with chimpanzees and whatnot. And he shared a story, the uh, experience they had, there was a incident that was kind of kept hush-hush because they were trying to develop, uh, one of the goals was to develop uh, ecotourism, bringing tourists in to see the chimpanzees, much like the uh, gorillas of the Virungas, the mountain gorillas. And um, a uh, woman had parked her baby under the shade of a bush. She was a few feet away working in the fields with others. And along comes a big uh, chimpanzee. And here was, uh, you know, fast food as far as he was concerned. And off he went. Yeah, the the uh, field workers went in chase. But by the time they were able to, to uh, extricate the baby, it had been 
dispatched and partially consumed. You know, well, then, no, no sooner had he told me the story that then within a few months, there was a press coverage of, I mean, it got to the point because of the drought, I guess, was what they figure brought it to a head. Uh, and they couldn't uh, keep it under wraps any longer. In a seven-month period, there had been 12 instances of toddlers or infants being snatched by chimpanzees. Oh, my God. And so that is horrifying. Yeah, and so suddenly a just so story takes on a whole different character. You know, this isn't out of the ordinary or not. Well, this is it is out of the ordinary. It's not something that happens all the time. It was you know the population was stressed, food was was at a premium, and uh, you know they became uh, the children became a prey item, um, just like chimps will snatch monkeys or they'll snatch uh, fawns of uh, impala or whatever. Um, and anyway. Um, but now suddenly you've got a situation where this just so story is actually right in line with something that's quite uh, plausible for natural behavior of a great ape, just like the fishing we were talking about, you know, or the swimming. Um, it's interesting how some of the qualities and behaviors of the Sasquatch have uh, stories have actually anticipated subsequent discoveries about the nature and behavior of, of uh, great apes. And this is uh, this is one of that. So, so it's a theme. You know, I, we mentioned the the Tsonikwa with her pursed lips. Mm -hmm. She's also depicted with these big, oversized hands, which allegedly she smears pine pitch on, so that when she snatches up the children, <laughs> she can get a good grip and pitch them into a basket on her back, which right. she takes home. Well, there are there's repetition. There was a, a petroglyph that uh, an archaeologist in Wyoming showed me which depicts um, the wild woman, you know, by a different name. Uh, here in Idaho, one of the names for this creature is the eater of children. And I've had students tell me, oh, yes, my granny would always tell us, you know, in the summertime we slept with the windows open. We didn't have air conditioning, so we slept with the windows open. She'd tell us to hush and, and uh, go to sleep if we were making noise, laughing and giggling, that the, they called it the lost brother, would come by and reach in and snatch you away, and we won't know what's happened to you. So they would lie there just terrified that some big hairy arm is going to come in the window, you know, and they wouldn't wouldn't make a fuss. But uh, but that was, uh, you know, the boogeyman story. Uh, you go down, down. I found a, a catalog of petroglyphs of the Anasazi, so the uh, ancient Puebloans, and sure enough, right there, boom, jumping out of the page at me, is that same depiction like in the petroglyph in Wyoming, big broad shoulders, little head, big feet sticking off to the sides, and arms raised up with the big hands displayed prominently in the same fashion as the Tsonikwa often poses for for uh, her picture. You know, they, they have a ceremony with a Tsonikwa dance and uh, a full costume uh, with a, you know, the body suit covered in, you know, made of a fur, and it's quite, quite impressive uh, to watch. Uh, she, she uh, crouches down, and she makes that whoop, whoop, kind of uh, uh, wailing sound, sometimes whistles, and then uh, she's always depicted with her eyes sort of as a slit, because she's a little dull-witted and, um, and rather sleepy. And uh, I guess she doesn't like coming out in the daytime or something. But in any case, um, so after she's snatched up a few children and she's 
trekking back to her cave to have them for dinner, she gets tired and she starts to slow down. Pretty soon her head nods forward on her chest and she's snoring away. And the kids then uh, creep out of the basket really quickly and run home. So rarely is a child ever eaten in the storytelling. It's Again, it's the boogeyman, Hansel and Gretel, you know, not pushing the witch in the oven, but they do make their escape. But um, it may be based on uh, some historical incident, much like what happened in Uganda during uh, the hard times of the drought season. You mentioned you actually know Ron Moorhead personally. Can you describe how you two met and just a little bit about him as a person? Well, I was reflecting on that, and I, I think the first time we met was almost certainly at one of these uh, conferences. Uh, that's kind of the opportunity where a lot of us keep tabs on one another. But, uh, um, and of course, I knew of him. Uh, I knew of his involvement because of my... Uh, early contact with the Sierra Sounds recordings and reading about it in different uh, different venues. Uh, Ron is a, a very, very mild-mannered man. He, uh, he comes off very credible, very believable. Um, he uh, has some different ideas about Sasquatch and, and its nature than I do. I think he's uh, um, strayed a little into the weeds on with his notion of quantum the application of quantum physics to the macro world um but and how that would relate to uh, the sasquatch phenomenon but um uh you know i've I've had no reason to doubt his um his credibility and it's always been a little an uncomfortable tension my hesitancy to uh accept on face, the, the footprint evidence, and and then the potential implications of what that would mean if they're not credible. Um, and so, and so we, you know, we we uh, I'm I'm usually pretty good uh, at uh, maintaining good personal relationships with individuals, even in the face of of. Um, differences of personal opinion, you know, as long as they don't devolve into uh, ad hominem attacks uh, in, in either direction. I try to avoid that and apologize if I've offended people as uh, by, by inadvertently doing that. But I, you know, I, I mean, my criticisms are always directed at the evidence, at the data. And uh, that's one of the potential pitfalls of, of um, working with people in a group of non-professionals. I mean, my academic colleagues are, are uh, seasoned and trained to expect their work to be held up to scrutiny and to criticism and, and, uh, and testing um, and, not, and, you know, and not take it as a personal attack. Although, you know, even in academia, uh, personalities vary and and egos and reputations can sometimes uh, win out over the ideals of, uh, of scientific uh, investigation and peer review. But uh, for a lot of people in, uh, you know, on the avocational side of this, or non, I just say non-professional, maybe a better way to say it, non-academics, um, that piece of evidence becomes their, uh, 
their symbol of participation and involvement. And so questioning their evidence is interpreted as a per- they take it as a personal affront because because it threatens their claim to a seat at the table so to speak and uh, so it's always a bit problematic people constantly send me stuff to be, to evaluate most react very positively when i try to just you know systematically and critically uh, evaluate it and show them the pros and cons of what they may or may not have others whoa Suddenly, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm the bad guy, and uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, of course, um, what do you think it is about Sasquatch that is a t- makes it a taboo subject in academic circles? Right. Well, it I, there are different answers to that question. I think I don't think there's one simple answer, but <clears throat> they include, as I just alluded to, there are individuals with uh, strong personalities and egos. And uh, for those people, uh, some of those people, it's like uh, they see any, anybody or, or uh, any suggestion that they take such a uh, wacky, in their minds, theory or idea or proposition seriously, then, then threatens their credibility, threatens their stature. And so it's, it's all about person, personal uh, reputation and ego in some instances. In other instances, it is a matter of a misapprehension about what can or can't exist. And there was a time, you know, for the longest time, I, I, I just could not understand why was there this visceral response. I mean, I know, I, I knew the history. I knew that science, you know, in response to the Patterson-Gimlin film, really pulled back. That, that was a, a point where I think <clears throat> their feet were held to the fire, and they all faltered because, and I wondered why, why would that be that there would be such a reaction to the very possibility that something exists? Yeah, because at that time it really hadn't, the tabloid stigma sort of came in to play uh, when a void was created by science completely withdrawing from it. So as I looked, you know, I, I've, with age, you, you tend to appreciate this more, but it's very important to understand the historical backdrop and context of ideas. And so back in the 60s, you know, right when Ivan Sanderson was presenting his thesis of all these, these uh, abominable snowmen, or ABSMs, he called them around the world, different types. Um, and when Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin in 1967 claimed to have captured this, you know, and when, the, when the headlines were uh, in, in 1958, when uh, Jerry Crew came down into town with that first plaster cast, um, at that time, the backdrop in anthropology was dominated by an idea about the way in which human evolution had transpired. There was, uh, there was influence on anthropology from, from uh, the developing discipline of ecology, which in turn had borrowed a central principle from uh, microbiology from the 30s called the, the competitive exclusion principle. No two species can occupy the same niche, you know, uh, same habitat. The, the, the concept of niche really burgeoned in ecology and, and, and incorporated that competitive exclusion principle. Well, anthropology, trying to be more interdisciplinary and, you know, uh, borrowing principles from other disciplines internalized that niche concept and it was seen 
that the hominin niche was very specific, very narrow, bipedalism, braininess, and culture. And so there could be only one species occupying it at any given time. And so you had this vision of evolution, one species giving rise to another, being succeeded by another, and so forth, with the previous ones going extinct because there could be only one in that niche. Well, we now know that that uh, isn't the case at all. It's a very bushy tree, getting bushier by the year, it seems, and that many of those species have, uh, or not many, I always say many, but a number of species, anything more than one seems like many when you're looking from this side of the fence, I guess. But, but a few species, a few lineages on that bushy tree have persisted uh, um, at least uh, recognizably in the fossil record till much more recently than would have been allowed for just 50 years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so we've got uh, Homo floresiensis, We've got Homo heidelbergensis, you know, between 10 and 20 years, 20,000 years, excuse me, uh, in age. We've got Neanderthal sites. Uh, we have potentially Denisovans. We've got Homo erectus in the islands, of remote areas of Southeast Asia. We had a jaw dredged up off the, off the uh, coast of Taiwan that looks like a Homo erectus, and it was preliminary date was 12,000 years in age. I mean, this is just a snap of the fingers. Why would we assume that all these lineages completely went extinct and we are the, quote, last hominin standing um, uh, when the uh, rule rather than the exception of the past was multiple species uh, existing across the landscape, especially in the face of so much interesting evidence that points to the persistence of those very species that, you know, so the <clears throat> the Yereng Pendek might be a Homo floresiensis or a relic Australopithecine, you know, or maybe it's a relic uh, terrestrial mainland uh, orangutan, you know, the the Yeti may be a persistent uh, Dryopithecine or Shivapithecine, whichever, we're kind of in the in the in-between limbo, you know, the Russian Almas may be a relic Neanderthal. Uh, Homo, uh, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Sasquatch or the Chinese Yaren might be a Paranthropus gone gigantic during the Pleistocene or a Gigantopithecus. You've got something that's the right size in the right place at the right time. Why, why would that be such a, an outlandish proposition that, and it's always interesting because, um, for example, Chris Stringer, a very prominent paleoanthropologist in uh, the British Museum of Natural History, publicly stated that he thought it was not at all far-fetched to suggest that something like Gigantopithecus might ha actually persist in the dense forests of Southeast Asia. Well, but when I asked him, I said, I, said, I, I really appreciated that acknowledgement, that possibility, but, but what about Sasquatch in North America? Oh, no, <laughs> not in North America, not in the United States. How could that possibly be? And I felt like saying, well, come over here, I'll show you how that could possibly be, you know, you, where we could take your entire nation and stick it in one of those wilderness areas. <laughs> well, that's the, th that's the thing that I think a lot of people bring up. And um, it's one of my last questions here is uh, people always wonder why we haven't found more evidence right. for Sasquatch's existence. Can you ex talk on that? Like what, what might be the reason why it's so hard for us right. to find hard evidence? Well, heart, yes. And so if you call, I was going to say, we are, we are continually finding more evidence, but it's not the conclusive evidence. The, the, uh, and even the hard, I would argue, you know, we have hair samples 
that defy attribution to common forms of wildlife that we just have not been successful in extracting DNA from. And it's not at all that surprising given the characteristics of the hair and the close affinity, uh, potentially, of this species to us. And so most of the DNA studies, I mean, on those rare times they have gotten DNA, say, from a hair sample, it invariably comes back as, quote, human. Well, they've only looked probably at, if, if we're lucky, one mitochondrial gene, if, even if a whole gene. And if you're looking at two species that differ by, say, less than 1% or one-tenth of 1%, then have you looked at enough sequence to draw that conclusion? I mean, the conclusion is either that it's contaminated from handling by the discoverer, or two, it's a misidentified human hair. But what never gets discussed, unless I bring it up, is the third possibility, that it is uh, uh, distinctive, but you just haven't gathered enough data to make that determination one way or the other. So there's that. And then there's the, you know, where are the bodies, where are the bones? Well, uh, again, I think the, the common denominator for those questions is the, the numbers. It's, it's, a, it's a numbers game. Not a game, but a, a statistical thing. I mean, we're talking about a large bodied, if we can extrapolate, and I think we're, we're justified in, in doing that based on clues offered by the frequency of visual encounters and the frequency of footprint finds, we're dealing with a large-bodied, long-lived ape that reproduces infrequently, has no natural predators. It, uh, it probably lives, given its size and, and its uh, position you know, in the hominoid clade, to be at probably a half a century, 50, 60 years in the wild. So there's not a lot of turnover um, you know, we, uh, if we look at examples of other great apes, take orangutans, they reproduce only once every, you know, four to eight years, uh, depending on which, uh, which study you cite. And, uh, so by comparison, uh, if we look at, say, uh, a rough estimate of what I think might be a population in Idaho here, um, about, uh, 150 to 300 in Idaho compared to 35,000 black bear in Idaho. Now, when you look at that difference and, and you say, well, where's the bear bones and, and bodies? You know, there are, people do successfully hunt bear, and on rare occasions, despite some claims by some skeptics to the contrary, on rare occasions, people find bones in, in the field of bear. Um, we could turn, you know, to something much rarer. How, how often has someone on a hike found a wolverine skull? You know, there, there you're getting closer to the population numbers, the same habitat, the same kinds of ranges uh, that we might expect for a Sasquatch. And, you know, they're, they're ghosts. Um, but in any case, uh, animals like that, predators that don't have... Uh, um, you know, uh, die natural deaths typically of old age or, or injury or disease uh, rather than predation, they're going to secrete themselves off into some out-of-the-way nook or cranny. I mean, just like when, you're, when your cat gets hurt, it'll disappear for a few days. And, you know, uh, our cat got in a fight with the neighbor cat and got the worst of it, and she disappeared. We didn't know why. We thought she'd run away. Well, about four days later, she emerges from under the bed in the master bedroom <laughs> where she'd been hiding nursing her wounds and 
and, uh, and then finally came out to take care of business. But uh, they'll do that. But if the animal then dies, its uh, body is quickly uh, rendered by decomposers and so forth. And what bones persist? Uh, gnars and chewers, the, all the rodents, rabbits, even deer uh, chew up skeletal remains to get at the calcium. And what, what isn't and what remains exposed to the elements in wet coniferous forests, the soils are, are um, uh, notoriously acidic, especially if you're up in the Pacific Northwest where the volcanic uh, contribution is also acidic. The only place you might expect to find, and one, one I'd like to encourage people who are cavers or spelunkers, if they ever come upon unusual bones in limestone caves, uh, take a close look because you know that's where the paltry fossil record of Gigantopithecus has been found, is in li- limestone caves. And we only have them because porcupines dragged those bones into the caves where they chewed up the soft bits and the hard parts persisted and became fossilized. But that, that's why for you know, uh, 1.5 million years of tenure for that species, Gigantopithecus blackie in East Asia, we've got two jaws and a few couple thousand isolated teeth. That's it, period. And were it not for the porcupines, we wouldn't have that. That's wild. If listeners are interested in learning more about Sasquatch or any of, your, any of the work that you do, is there a good place for them to go? I think the the best place, if you haven't read my book, is to start there. Uh, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, which is available at uh, through Amazon or uh, Paradise K Paracay.com also carries it uh, very affordably. And then uh, uh, the best place for some of the latest uh, developments and interesting articles and reviews of books and so forth, essay style reviews and translations of, uh, of historical papers and so forth of other researchers internationally is the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, the RHI. And if you Google that, it pops right up. It's on the ISU server. So it's www.isu.edu forward slash RHI or just Google Relic Hominoid Inquiry. And as I said earlier, that's been uh, running for about 10 years now. And so we're accumulating quite an interesting collection of, of papers and contributions, and I think uh, people find those uh, very interesting. Let us know if you think Sasquatch could be real on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by R.J. Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.